Jon Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes. This is the Daily Show podcast that goes a little deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on the show. You know what the Daily Show is, but we give you a little extra, more than what you thought. You, you, you know what this podcast is? This podcast is like when you go to the strip club, right? You go to the strip club to be entertained and eat a little bit of food. And then on the way out of the strip club, one of the dancers pulls you to the side and says, if you really miss her, you should just call her. It's never too late to try love again. That's what this podcast is. Today, we're talking about something that might be a little more serious than what advice you get at a strip club. We're talking about the Supreme Court. Give me a clip. For the past 50 years, ever since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade, women in America have had the right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. And now, it looks like that right is going away. While many people are upset about the decision itself, some people are only upset that we're hearing about the decision. This is as corrosive, as destructive to the Supreme Court as we've ever seen. This is an insurrection against the Supreme Court. It is not up to a law clerk to decide when the decision of the court will be announced. This should have never happened. They should be able to make decisions in private and secret, and then once they're ready to decide and let the country know how that they have ruled, let it out. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. I understand why these people are upset. You heard what they said. The conservative majority on this court has a fundamental right to choose when they want to release a decision into the world. Imagine having some random person violate your privacy and make that choice for you. Who would do such thing. The newest Supreme Court term began in early October, and today I've got three guests to help me break down where we are with everything going on in the SCOTUS. First up, we have Daily Show supervising producer and writer who happens to be a former attorney, Jubin Prang. How you doing, Jubes? Good to see you. I'm doing great, Roy. Thank you. Thank you so much, by the way, for my first appearance in this podcast to give me this trip club intro. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm really, sorry uh, that I had a little bit of a meltdown there at the top of the show. Love is an illusion, Juven. Never forget that. <laughs> Next, we have the editor of SCOTUS Blog, a corner of the Internet where you can read up on what's happening with the Supreme Court. And they tell you everything that's going on. It's all right out there in the open. And Maybe it'll help you ace your civics test. James Ramosa. James, welcome to Beyond the Scenes. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Happy to be here. And finally joining us, the ACLU's legal director. And fun fact, he taught both Jubin and James at Georgetown Law. David Cole, welcome to your class reunion. But first, I have to ask before we start, David, who was the better student, James or Jubin? I think I got to I think I got to give them both A pluses. <laughs> can't wow, can't what distinguish. A, what is, what is, can't distinguish. <laughs> just I don't by think the, that's what just, my, trans, my transcript says. I, I got to be honest. Yeah. Can I go back just, and well, make well, some revisions? Just, just retrospectively, by the fact that they've made it all the way to this podcast, A plus. Yes. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, then, since you are the professor, <laughs> I'll start with you, David. You know, and Jubin James, you know, feel free to jump in, but be respectful to your professor, right? And shut your ass up. Absolutely. And let him talk first. 
Uh, the last Supreme Court session, David, you know, it, it wrapped up last June and it was pretty contentious. It was a lot of, you know, back and forth on a lot of cases that don't necessarily find their way to the top of the media cycle. Just to start this whole conversation off, what were some of the bigger cases and issues that were decided during the last SCOTUS session? It was a brutal term. Uh, you know, Trump, President Trump appointed three justices uh, to the court during his time, and he promised uh, that they would overturn Roe versus Wade. And sure enough, uh, in uh, their first full term on the court, they took a case that they did not have to take, uh, and they uh, threw out a constitutional right that every woman of childbearing age has grown up uh, depending upon. Really a remarkable decision in Dobbs. But they didn't stop there. Uh, they then went on uh, to uh, strike down a uh, New York law that says, you know, you can't carry a gun on the streets of Manhattan uh, unless you have a reason for carrying a gun on the streets of Manhattan and you got to get a permit for doing so. Uh, over a century old law struck it down under uh, the, the Second Amendment. Uh, and then they uh, essentially turned uh, the religion clauses on their head. It used to be that the religion clauses required separation of church and state but in uh, two cases last term, the court held that a football coach, high school football coach, had the constitutional right to pray publicly at the end of every game uh, in contra contrary to uh, his school's direction. Uh, and in a case out of Maine, they held that the state of Maine was constitutionally required to fund uh, religious um, school, private schools uh, if they're funding uh, secular private schools. So, you know, where the Constitution used to say separation of church and state, now mm -hmm. the Constitution uh, requires the state to support religion and requires the state to allow its officials to pray publicly at, uh, you know, at the football game of all places. So, you know, in, 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 in all those cases, they overturned, you know, years of precedent, 50 years of precedent in Dobbs, 100 years of precedent with respect to the New York uh, gun carrying law and decades of precedent on uh, on the religion clause cases. Okay, so religion, women, guns, thank God the environment wasn't caught oh, up in oh, this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I missed that one. I missed God. that one. So, yeah. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> yeah, so. so what about it, that it, one then? How'd they, how'd they reverse the precedent on the environment? <laughs> Give us that. Constitutionally, it does not have the right to exist, it turns out. Yeah. Very amazing, right. amazing. <laughs> it turns out the EPA is unconstitutional. No, they did not rule that the Environmental Protection Agency is unconstitutional, but they did rule that the Environmental Protection Agency did not have the authority to require the plants that produce electric power for the grid to shift from coal power plants to other uh, more green uh, sources of energy. They made up a new doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine, which essentially says, if we don't like what a statute says, we'll say it's really important and it's major, and unless Congress has expressly provided precisely what the agency should do, we'll say the agency has no power. And, you know, Congress is essentially uh, moribund these days. It can't really pass an virtually anything. So the notion that it has to kind of uh, legislate in detail in order to allow us uh, to deal with things like climate change is a, uh, a recipe for um, uh, disaster. Okay. So as I attempt to not pull my hair out at everything that you just said, uh, James, all of these things that David was just talking about, 
went through one Supreme Court session. Busy year, I would say. Like, how does all of this, like, not get the same level of public attention? Or has it been getting exposure and we, the public, have just been too busy watching Dancing with the Stars and the Kardashians and not paying attention? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think that the Dobbs decision took up so much oxygen from the room that people were so laser focused on that case and, and to some extent the, the guns case as well that David talked about that some of these other cases about religion, about climate change, and th there were others as well that we haven't even touched on, uh, would have been blockbuster cases that would have gotten massive coverage in any other term. But because, you know, the abortion decision was so monumental, you know, some of these other cases with also far reaching implications you know, maybe got pushed under the radar, you know, a little a little bit. But I, I think if you look at all of the cases and the totality of the term, what you see is a court that is choosing to take up cases in order to move the law in a new direction and a quite conservative direction. As David said, the court has a lot of discretion in which cases it wants to hear. There's no need necessarily to hear the abortion case. There's an affirmative action case we'll probably talk about later that there's really no need for the court to take up that case, but the court decided that they're going to hear it. And just by virtue of taking up basically the most divisive issues in American life and American policy, the court is really intervening in, 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 these, in these debates in ways that it doesn't necessarily have to, but reflects the, the ideological commitments of the court's new members. Well, and also I would say reflects a lack of kind of judgment and modesty. I mean, when you have three new justices put on a court by a president who expressly and publicly proclaims, I'm putting these people on the court to overturn Roe versus Wade, I think, you know, a, a modest court would say, well, let's not, you know, make number one on the agenda, overturning Roe versus Wade, because then it looks like we're just doing the president's bidding. We're not acting like judges. Uh, and so, you know, I think most people predicted that the court would not overturn Roe versus Wade. It would maybe you know, limit it at the edges. But boy, as soon as you, you know, we, we, we heard the argument in that case, it was clear they were they were going for it. And they have not slowed down, as, as James indicated, in the cases that they're going to hear this term. So with Juven on the show, now, I don't know you know, how he was as a student there with you, David. But Juven, at well, the Daily David Show. Well, David said A+, plus, so I think we can assume that's accurate <laughs> in, in every respect. I don't think we need to, certainly we don't need to dig any further into my... He, 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 made, a, he, made, a great, he made a great joke in every class, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to. I was just trying to answer the questions, unfortunately. <laughs> Juven is what I believe to be one of the emotional cores in the writer's wing in that... As a writer on The Daily Show, Juven, you know, and as a performer, we have to take in a lot of the worst news all the time and then figure out a way to make it funny. And sometimes you have to do that without feeling. But Juven somehow has mastered the art of feeling empathy within a story and making sure that that heart is honored within the piece in addition to the comedy. So, like, so Juven, like, what are what are some of the conversations that you and Trevor had you know, as a team, because I'm not always over there because y'all send me to Atlanta to be in a kayak and sneakers because nobody told me that I needed kayak shoes and I was wearing my good ass. Anyway, but um, it was funny, though, right? It was funny it was seeing funny. you cry was, on that on the bank of that river. It was, it was very a good amusing. Piece. 
When you and Trevor and the the rest of the writing team were reacting to Roe v. Wade and that whole leak and its eventual overturn, how do you all manage striking the right tone? Because the country was angry and there's a lot of times when people don't want to necessarily laugh, but how do you all maintain the balance of empathy versus anger versus humor when you're dealing with all of the Supreme Court decisions? You know, it's like what you were saying earlier, you really just have to channel all the jokes through the emotions. And by doing that, by honoring the emotion, it gives you the um, permission, both both in your own um, psyche and also to the audience to make the jokes. You can't um, pretend that people are not upset about this. You can't pretend this is not a change uh, and just make jokes sort of divorced from those feelings. You'll, you'll come off either, you know, um, uh, cruel or indifferent and the jokes won't have that extra um, punch to them. So the challenge, uh, I think, as a comedy writer, especially for topical stuff, is identifying what it is that is making you feel whatever you are feeling about an issue and then articulating that emotion on the way to a joke. And with the way we did that with the uh, with the abortion, uh, with the leak of the Dobbs decision and eventually the decision itself was, you know, especially with uh, a lot of the writers who are feeling very disappointed and very angry with not just the justices, but also with the Democratic uh, Party uh, apparatus that was more interested in fundraising off of this than doing anything in the months between the leak and the decision to use their power to do something about it. You know, the uh, senators like um, like Collins and, and Manchin, who were shocked, just absolutely shocked that they had been tricked by the justices uh, into voting for them when they were assured so firmly that Roe v. Wade was a precedent. One of the jokes we had about that was that why does Susan Collins, why is she never tricked into doing anything good? It seems like the only people on the planet who didn't realize what was happening were Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, who now say that they were tricked. Tricked, I tell you, by these judges. And by the way, why does Susan Collins never get tricked into improving healthcare or solving climate change, huh? Yeah, she's never like, oh, damn it, I accidentally canceled student loan debt. Get it together, Susan! <laughs> you know, because people don't come to, uh, you know, a comedy show, you know, looking to not laugh. If you are not providing those jokes, then you are not, uh, you're just opining and you can go anywhere to, to, to find opinions. That's the challenge of, of, of comedy writing is, is channeling that emotion into jokes um, that resonate with those feelings. And I think, you know, especially it helps with, um, we, you know, we had we had Desi Lai to come on after um, uh, the the decision was leaked and then was was uh, overthrown to talk about her um, feelings that she was doing through a weather report about all the parts of the country that are going to be devastated by this, that you're going to see all the influx of people trying to go like a hurricane into other states to get abortions. Now, let's take a look at what's happening along the coast, particularly in New York and California, where there is a powerful surge of desperate people flooding into your states. So blow up those air mattresses and fill up that gas tank because Tammy from Tulsa is moving in. <laughs> Doing jokes through the weather um, while very, being very clear what she's actually talking about, I think builds up a very funny tension um, that by the end of it, when Trevor's like, this isn't really about the weather, and she's like, no, it's not. Fuck Sam Alito and anybody who tells us what women can do with their bodies. That kind of releases that. And there's a, there's a rhythm to this and a music to it that you need to, to have. And you can only have that by going through the emotions that you're feeling. The real weather event is happening over at the Supreme Court. Now, our storm centers have been tracking this for years. So we knew this acid rain was coming. But that doesn't mean it still doesn't burn the hell out of our twats. <laughs> So that's the weather. Back to you, Trevor. I think uh, 
thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Desi. But clearly that wasn't about the weather. I, uh... No, no, it wasn't. F Sam Alito and anyone else who tells a woman what to do with their own body. Here's, here's a question for the three of you. What changed within the, within the ideology of the Supreme Court? Because the thing is that, you know, the court since the 70s has been majority Republican appointed. That's not a new thing, but it seems like the decisions that the court has been making are more aggressively conservative. What do you think was the match that lit the fuse on this kind of change in ideology and adjudication? Well, it's true that the court has been majority Republican appointed for many decades, but, you know, until recently, judge there was no ideological purity test for for justices, or at least it certainly wasn't as uh, as extreme as it is now. And so former justices like Sandra Day O'Connor and John Paul Stevens and David Souter, these were all Republican appointed justices, but these were turned out to be liberal to moderate justices on the Supreme Court. That no longer happens. Now Republican presidents are quite certain that every justice they appoint will be a hardcore conservative and will sort of um, uh, be, you know, take consistent ideological ideological positions with uh, the Republican Party's policy preferences and the uh, the legal views of the federal society. Um, and, and there are many reasons for that. There's been, you know, an emphatic movement on the right in particular to support a legal conservative establishment and appoint people within that movement to lower court justices who eventually rise to the ranks and get vetted and become the, the top candidates for justice slots uh, under Republican presidents. I think that's right. I, I think, you know, it's also, you know, the, the right likes to criticize the left for being woke, uh, but the right is very rigid in terms of what kinds of legal views are going to be acceptable uh, within the power uh, you know, structure that is, um, you know, at the, at the top of which is the Federalist Society, uh, an organization that started actually when I was a law student, um, but has become incredibly powerful and to which President Trump essentially assigned the job of, of uh, identifying uh, judges and justices. Um, and the other thing that I think that has changed, which is really significant, is that um, you no longer have to get uh, over a filibuster to confirm a Supreme Court justice. So until the, you know, the end of the Obama administration, essentially, every judge, every federal judge had to be approved by 60 senators, which meant that you had to get some support from the other party. The, the Democrats got rid of the filibuster when the Republicans started using it across the board just to be obstructionist. They got rid of it for, for lower federal court judges, but the, but the Republicans got rid of it for the Supreme Court. Once you do that, you got 50 votes uh, in the Senate. You don't have to uh, look for someone who's moderate. You don't have to look for someone who has an open mind. You don't have to try to uh, appease the other side. And, uh, you know, that and Trump just, you know, ran with that. And so um, so the I Republicans the got rid of that under Trump. I just want to make sure we make that clear. Yeah, right? the, for Supreme Court justices. Correct. But okay. but the Democrats got rid of it uh, for judges, but because it had been abused. Um, uh, by the Republican Party. For a long time, it was used sparingly. And then the Republicans just started using it across the board, absolutely, regardless of who uh, Obama put up. And so then, you know, that, that led Harry Reid to say, we're going to get rid of it for, for, for district court and court of appeals judges, not for the Supreme Court, but then 
uh, McConnell got rid of it for the Supreme Court. You know, it actually is uh, interesting to me as, as the, you know, the, the idea that the Supreme Court and that the legal system in general has always been just an extension of, of politics. Um, by by other means, there's always been like a critique of the left. But I feel like, and I'm I'm thinking about this with something you said, you said earlier, David, that it feels like this idea that that the courts are just simply another part of the a political project seems to have now been ad- adopted by almost everybody in the system. Now, there's no longer any perception that this is a uh, court that uh, has any legitimacy or role to play outside of a political project. And I wonder, to the extent that you were saying that even the with Congress also driven down to gridlock, if this was necessarily going to bring the court into a role like this, or if this is just part, part of the larger um, collapse of institutions into this kind of like ever grinding political culture war that uh, seems to have been accelerating the last like 20, 30 years. Yeah, no, I think it is um, the latter. I think it's really hard for any institution to stay above the fray when the country is so divided. Uh, So it makes uh, everyone, you know, sort of uh, sort themselves into, you know, into, into the, into one camp or the other. And if you try to maintain something in the middle, you just get, you know, killed by both sides. So, there's there, it's it's partly that you know I, I do think still that the ideal is important and that a lot of judges and including some justices uphold this ideal which is that you know they're not partisan hacks they're supposed to actually apply the law they're supposed to be guided by the law they are they are they are not allowed to do as members of Congress uh, can just just vote party line down the line um, but last term they didn't act that way. And their approval rating uh, across the country has dropped to 25%, which is probably above Congress, but it is the lowest the, the Supreme Court approval rating has been, I believe, so, you know, since we've done approval ratings of the Supreme Court. And that's because I think people see exactly what you're talking about, Julian, that, they, they, you know, that the court is not acting like a court. It's not doing what you're supposed to do. And when you're not, you know, when you don't have to run for reelection, when there's no democratic constraint on you, you know, your legitimacy turns on acting like a court being bound by law. And when you throw out a 50 year old constitutional precedent simply because, you know, President Trump got three appointees uh, on the court, just exercise your muscles to do that. People say, wait a minute, this is not a court anymore. And so we're not going to give it the deference yeah. that uh, it would otherwise be due. And that's that's a very dangerous thing, I think, for this society, because you do need an institution that can resolve differences that people will accept as legitimate. And, uh, you know, I think they're putting that into jeopardy. After the break, I want to dig a little bit more into exactly that. And let's discuss what this means for the future of the Supreme Court and what it means for the future of lawmaking. We'll be right back after the break. This is Beyond the Scenes. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Beyond the scenes, we are back. We are talking about the Supreme Court of the United States, or as I call it in the barbershop, SCOTUS. Just this is just an aside. James, you got the SCOTUS blog and you lay everything out week to week on what's going on in the court. Why don't the Supreme Court have a channel? They need a channel. Like, like we got court TV and we be watching all these state and local cases. We don't need that shit. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court needs a camera in there so we can see this shit happening and unfolding in real time. Be nice. Right. I could not agree more. SCOTUS blog has been advocating for greater transparency for for quite a while. I don't think it's going to happen. The justices have long been resistant to any cameras. They don't even allow photography, never mind live video. Now, there has been one tiny incremental step in favor of greater transparency, which is that during the pandemic, when the court moved to remote arguments, it started making live audio streams available of its arguments. And um, I think, you know, it, it, it was actually like a real boon for education and transparency by the Supreme Court. And the court has decided to keep that in place even when they uh, went back into the courtroom, um, <laughs> which I, I was I was happy about that. So everyone can listen to arguments live, at least in an audio fashion. Uh, I think it's going to be quite some time before we actually get get video in there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, love the transparency. Now, Zubin, you took a lot of political science classes and, you know, and, you know, in a poly science class or in a government class, we learned there are three branches of government. There's the legislative branch. There's the executive branch. Judge Judy branch, excuse me, <laughs> the judicial branch. I thought mm-hmm. the judicial branch had something to do with Judge Judy. And more and more it does. <laughs> yeah. the well, Judge she's going to be Trump's next nominee if he wins re-election. Yeah. She'll <laughs> <laughs> soon be known change. as a Judge Judy branch. She'd have to take a major pay cut to move to the yeah. I don't, I don't know if she true. would do it. Very That's a true. separate conversation. <laughs> Judge Judy making that money. <laughs> the judicial branch... Now, we know what they do. They they sit there and they try to make sure that the laws are interpreted properly. 
But it feels like the Supreme Court is attempting to make new laws. Is that what you're feeling right now, Jubin, in terms of what's going on with a lot of the precedent being reversed? I'll tell you, Roy, when you go to law school, you learn that there's five extra branches of government that really make all the laws. And it's not something most people know about, but you also have, you know, the judiciator, the executory, all that kind of stuff. That's a lot more um, real than than the stuff you learn in, you know, in elementary school. Alabama public schools. Thank you. Shout out. Yeah, you're not going to do that. No, I mean, that's that's always kind of been the critique, I guess, that you can't really interpret the law without changing it. You know, to a certain extent, the judiciary has always had that that lawmaking power just by virtue of being able to interpret a law uh, and thereby changing who it applies to and who doesn't. And I, it feels like the history of the Supreme Court has been one uh, of which justices feel comfortable using that power and to what extent they do, whether the court uh, of that era tends to be one that is um, restrained in certain areas and is more active in other areas. Um, I do think you could argue, for example, um, the Warren Court was much more in the realm of of active lawmaking uh, with respect to criminal justice over the 60s. Um, And we are now in a different era where the court is much more active with respect to um, issues that that uh, that the conservative movement cares a lot more about uh, gun rights, uh, religious liberty rights as, you know, uh, unbalanced to um, uh, public rights uh, opposed to those religious uh, liberty rights. I'm very happy to uh, to to see if Dave and James agree with me, but it feels like th- th- that tension between um, a judiciary that uh, wants to um, that that cannot help but uh, create law just by interpreting law is one that always exists, and it's just a matter of like which justices feel comfortable using that power in what area. I, I think that's right. Although um, you know, one of the key things about being a judge, one of the key constraints on being a judge, is that you are Uh, bound by precedent. So, yeah, you have to take the cases that were decided before you and apply them to a new circumstance. And there's room for discretion in how they're applied to the new circumstance. But you are bound by those prior precedents and you have to try to make sense of them in a consistent way, unless you decide to overturn those prior precedents. And when you overturn those prior precedents, then you're not bound by anything. And that's what you have with a case like Dobbs. That's what you have with those religion cases. That's what you have, I think, with the gun cases. And this term, the court has taken a whole bunch of cases where the argument that's being made to them is reject prior precedent uh, and interpret the Constitution the way we want you to interpret the Constitution, the way it never has been interpreted before, but to obstruct the ability of other branches to extend rights uh, and protection to disadvantaged groups. So the Warren Court it didn't, you know, did create a lot of new law, but it was seeking to expand rights for people, to expand protection for the disadvantaged, uh, for those who are, uh, you know, charged in criminal cases, make sure they have a fair, uh, fair process and the like. What the arguments now are, the Equal Protection Clause blocks state and private schools from using affirmative action to try to lift uh, disadvantaged groups up and to create integrated and diverse uh, communities. They're arguing that the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a law that Congress passed to try to keep tribal families together, it violates the Equal Protection Clause and therefore uh, Congress can't seek to protect uh, Native American uh, 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 kids by singling them out. In a case called 303 Creative, a website designer is arguing that she has the right under the First Amendment to open a business to the public, but then deny her service to same-sex couples because she objects to same-sex 
wedding. So she's in, invoking the Constitution to deny the Colorado legislature's rule that a business open to the public has to serve uh, has to serve everybody. So, you know, it, it, I think one of the key roles of a court is that they can protect people who can't get protected through the political process. This court, you know, this term may turn that on its head and use the Constitution as a as a barrier to other branches protecting disadvantaged groups. Can we course correct this at all? Like, is there a way for the court to re-legitimize itself or is this just the way it's going to be going forward when it comes to issues like precedent? Is precedent now officially, we just basically making new rules at this point, right? Yeah, well, look, I would say a couple of things. I, I think it is important to, to give the other side because the expansion and the restriction of rights really is often in the eye of the beholder. So it definitely is true that you can see a lot of the recent decisions as curtailing people's rights. But I think that people on the right would see many of the decisions as expanding rights in, in other ways. So the Second Amendment is part of the Constitution. If you believe in a robust interpretation of the Second Amendment, you would see this court as expanding the rights under the Second Amendment. Similarly, if you believe that religious liberty interests are important, you would see the court's religion jurisprudence lately as expanding people's religious rights. And yes, you know, those rights do, you know, come up against other interests. I think it's maybe a little simplistic to just say like, oh, the war on court was all about expanding rights and the current court just wants to curtail people's rights because I think that they would see themselves as expanding rights, but they're just different rights and, and there they're, they're are different stakes. And similarly, with regard to precedents, you know, it definitely is true that the current court is overturning a lot of precedent and, and quite aggressively and quickly. But again, the Supreme Court has always done that. Again, the Warren Court overturned a lot of precedent. Brown versus Board of Education, one of the most iconic decisions in Supreme Court history, overturned precedent. And let's not pretend that, you know, if, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, is elected to two terms and, you know, appoints, you know, four new justices when Congress passes the court, um, you know, a newly liberal Supreme Court will almost certainly overturn the Dobbs precedent and re-enshrine a right to abortion. And so, like, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I think, you know, liberal justices do this, too. And, and so I think it's just important to, to recognize that. Now, you asked about sort of ways to create more accountability. And I think there are some things that Congress could do. They could certainly expand the size of the Supreme Court. There are proposals to enact term limits on the justices, which would ensure that each president gets to appoint like sort of the same number of justices. And I, I think actually the most interesting proposal is to, uh, to do something called jurisdiction stripping, which sounds wonky, but it would basically be Congress just simply saying, um, the Supreme Court just doesn't have the power to review laws in certain areas. Uh, so for example, Congress could pass a new voting rights law and literally say, the Supreme Court has no power to strike this law down. That is absolutely within the power of Congress to do. So there are things that you know the political branches could do to check the Supreme Court to reduce the power of the Supreme Court or or enact, you know, ethical oversight. Uh, I don't see any of those proposals really getting off the ground. Uh, Biden hasn't spent a lot of political capital on these things. And with the exception of a few Democrats in Congress, I just don't see the political will to um, to enact these sorts of uh, court reforms. OK, so let's stay right there in that pocket for a second. With regards to expanding the court versus term limits. Should we do term limits, James and Jubin? Should we expand the Supreme Court? Or what are some other ways that we can return to a judiciary that's more representative 
of what the people think instead of just doing what the hell they want to do or doing what the hell the political person who appointed them wants them to do. Well, I do think that if you uh, have a judiciary that is more responsive to the public in in the in the in the in the way of which they are appointed by presidents more regularly and not directly elected, which I think is 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 probably too representative of, of public opinion for judiciary. I think that would go a long way towards at least allowing there to be a little less pressure on the system in other elections where, you know, you see the Senate elections almost entirely now hinge on who will give the president the majority they need to elect Supreme Court uh, or to appoint Supreme Court justices. You'll at least, you know, pull a little bit of of the venom out of that uh, area. And I think that's by itself a good reason to to go to term limits to guarantee at least a winning president gets, you know, two Supreme Court justices. And then you don't uh, have these situations where you where you have these like bizarre imbalances uh, where some presidents get to appoint a lot, some presidents don't appoint any, and everyone is just sitting here kind of just looking at Ruth Bader Ginsburg being like, lady, do you want to do anything um, in the next year or so? Maybe step down? Uh, or basically how they hounded uh, Breyer off the court. Um, it's not funny, but there were a lot of people during near the end of Trump's term where people were going, we need you to live until Biden gets into office. And that's the kind of political thinking that you would not necessarily want your Supreme Court justice to have, to have yes. to sit there and think in that element like, you know, how, you know, to have this political calculation of when should I retire or, or you know, how long can I, you know, sh- should I just like keep pumping the vitamins so I, I can last past this uh, particular president's term? So I think that certainly would help uh, reduce the the rest of the political um, uh, pressure on the system, or in the very least, would help a little bit more public acceptance of of a court um, of the decisions if they know that well, you know, if we really hate this decision, we can we, we will have a regular chance to uh, to vote in justice who might you know mollify it or overturn it. It is it is striking what you were uh, saying there about the the logic of the decision because I do feel like again this goes to my sense that this court is just openly um, political now. Uh, was reading. Um, uh, Justice Alito's concurrence in the uh, gun rights decision uh, that overturned New York's gun gun safety law, it read like the most Fox News poison grandpa screed I have ever read in a in a, in a Supreme Court uh, decision. And it felt to me like this is the writing of a person who does not really who's not really trying to convince anybody. He is mad that the dissent brought up a uh, a point. Um, that he uh, disliked them bringing up and wanted to just complain about. And if you are able to make unaccountable decisions democratically, you should, the whole entire given opinion is that you should have your reasoning made very clear. And if it is getting to the point now where the justices are able to, either with shadow dockets or these kinds of uh, opinions, just be like, uh, you know, this is what like Tucker said, then I think like you are really heading towards a situation where nobody is going to respect the court, regardless of their uh, of you know whether it's a conservative court or a liberal court. And I think that's the the, the real poison in, in in terms of the court's legitimacy. David, how do we get them back to a place of legitimacy where they're supposed to you know honor the beliefs that the electorate, the people that they're supposed to be serving? How do you? Honor the people that you're serving and not just yourself and your own interests. How do we hold them accountable? One, one thing that history shows is that uh, over time, the court has actually relatively rarely parted company with where the country is on the fundamental issues that are presented to the court. When it has, it has lost its legitimacy. It has come under attack and there's been a course correction. 
So, you know, the, the, the uh, first uh, major time was in the uh, uh, early part of the 20th century, the progressive era, the depression, you know, people were hurting and, and Congress and state legislatures responded by passing laws that protected workers, protected consumers from big business. And the court kept striking those laws down as violating the rights of these corporations. Uh, and that's ultimately led FDR to propose packing the court. And he didn't actually pack the court, but the court itself corrected uh, and, and, and started letting all those laws protecting the rights of consumers and the rights of workers go through. And I think another time, arguably, is the Warren Court. The Warren Court, to some degree, got out ahead of uh, where the country was. And for a long time thereafter, there's been a sort of course correction, not a radical course correction, but a course correction. You know, I take James's point that, you know, one right, you know, the rights are in the eye of the beholder to some extent. But, you know, not when you're talking about um, you know, abortion. You know, that is a right that 50% of this country enjoyed for 50 years, and the court just took it away. It no longer exists. You know, and, and, and I think, you know, to say, well, you know, the, 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 on something like affirmative action, the court is going to take away the power of uh, universities to try to do justice, to try to create integrated communities, to help the, the little guy, right? So, yeah, you can protect the rights of the powerful, against the little guy uh, and say you're protecting rights, but that's not what we expect a, a court to do in a, in a constitutional democracy. So when it doesn't do that, we have to condemn it, we have to criticize it, we have to you know, protest uh, you know, in the streets, we have to vote like our rights depend on it, we have to look to alternative forums like state uh, uh, Supreme Courts and the like. But ultimately, I think the court will get the message if that happens. Uh, and the fact that its approval rating is is twenty five percent, they're already you know they've gotten the message in the sense of they're going out and trying to make speeches saying, oh no, we don't decide cases on political bases. We're you know we're not politicians, but you know they're not going to win their legitimacy back by making speeches. They're going to win their legitimacy back by acting like judges, following precedent, and not deciding cases that really go against um, you know our our country's most fundamental values today. David, do you think that in that uh, because of that, that it's better to uh, leave um, this question of legitimacy up to uh, the individual justices, that it's better to trust them to kind of like understand when they've gone out over their skis? Or do you think there are any structural changes that might operate uh, that oh. might, might operate better and take that decision making out of the hands of their, you know, their own like savviness as political operators? Yeah. The fact that everyone's talking about all these sort of, you know, packing the court or term sure. limits or jurisdictions. That in and of itself sends a message to the court. Hey, wait a minute, we're doing something wrong because no one was talking about that for a long time. Now everyone's talking about it, right? So that in and of itself sends a message. You know, of those reforms, I am I, I, I think the term limits one makes a lot more sense than, than packing the court or jurisdiction stripping. But um, and I don't know that we'll ever get there. But I, I do think we might get there if they continue on the line that they seem to be going on. You know, it used to be you made narrow incremental arguments because that's the way the law developed in incremental narrow steps. Now you're seeing advocates come in and say, hey, throw it all out and let's start over and let's look back to, you know, let's get be, be bound by what what happened in, in 1789 and ignore the fact that 200 years of, of history has, has come in between. And 
You know, they could do that because they've shown in cases like the religion cases, the gun cases and the, and the and abortion, that they're willing to throw out, um, you know, the, to just impose new rules. And, you know, it's possible that they double down this term. Uh, and this is as big a term as last term with, you know, the affirmative action case with um, the vo very, very important voting rights case that we did with uh, the Legal Defense Fund that was argued just a couple uh, a week or so ago. It's possible they doubled down and they doubled down this term on equality and deny, you know, the ability to try to address equality, probably the biggest problem this country faces. And if so, I think there's going to be more and more criticism. And there, you know, at some point their approval rating will go below Congress. Oh, well, this is great news. And I appreciate you for bringing that to the podcast. Thank you very much for that. Matter of fact, I, I just need a break right now because <laughs> you've made me so frustrated. <laughs> uh, after the break, we're going to bring it home and uh, we're going to see if the three of you can say anything nice about SCOTUS or give us anything optimistic okay. to leave this podcast with okay we've been hitting them for the first two breaks with gut punch after gut punch i want all i want all three of you to sit and think of something nice that, that what you're looking forward to with the supreme court you have during these commercials for mattresses or whatever they're gonna play during this commercial you have that amount of time to think of nice things to say about the, the, the supreme court okay i like the ropes i i don't think y'all are gonna do it uh this is beyond the scenes we'll be right back <laughs> Oh, my Lord. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison... Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Beyond the scenes, we have been talking about the Supreme Court of the United States and all of the odd and controversial and contradictory decisions they've been making to strip your laws away. And before the break, David was so kind to remind us that now they will be trying to attack equality. Thank you so much, David, for that last little bit of good news. Before we all had to take a screen break, what are some other things that are going to be in the SCOTUS this term that also live under that umbrella 
of attacking equality. I know at the state level, there's been a lot of gerrymandering issues. There's also been a lot of, you know, equality cases in terms of denying same-sex couples services and stuff like that. Uh, what else is in motion right now in this term? So I already mentioned the affirmative action, the uh, public accommodations laws, First Amendment exemption from public accommodations laws and, and striking down the Indian Child Welfare Act. But there are two big cases involving uh, essentially gerrymandering, one involving racial gerrymandering by um, uh, your home state, I guess, of Alabama, where oh, yeah. 27% of the population is African-American, but only one of seven congressional districts do African-Americans have an, uh, a meaningful chance to elect a candidate of their choice. And, Coincidence. Coincidence. Yeah, and we, and we challenged that <clears throat> under the Voting Rights Act, uh, the ACLU and the Legal Defense Fund uh, challenged that, and we won unanimously before a three-judge panel, including a Trump judge on that on that court, because they applied existing law under the Voting Rights Act, which says if you, you know, create the districts in a way that denies uh, a minority group um, a, a meaningful, uh, equal opportunity to elect candidates of their choice, uh, you have violated the Voting Rights Act. Whether you do so intentionally, whether you can prove intent or not, doesn't matter. Um, Alabama appealed, and they're arguing essentially, no, you got to prove intent, which um, Congress was very clear that that is not what uh, is required. And then there's another case out of North Carolina where the um, Republican majority in North Carolina drew a congressional map that is skewed, skewed heavily towards favoring Republicans over Democrats, far uh, in excess of their actual um, percentage of, of, of voters. Uh, and the North Carolina Supreme Court said that's unco that's unconstitutional under the state constitution because the, uh, you can't partisan gerrymander. And the North Carolina Republicans have taken that to the Supreme Court and said there's this thing called the independent state legislature theory. It's a theory because it's not a rule. It's not a doctrine. It's never been recognized before. But they've invoked hypothesis. It. Someone may even call it a hypothesis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it hasn't even gone to a theory yet. But they hope, a wishful think, yeah, a wishful but, thought. But they've invoked it to basically say that um, you know because the election elections clause gives the legislature the power to create the rules for uh, congressional elections, the state legislatures are above the law. They cannot be constrained even by their own state constitutions, which after all are the things that create them and charter them, uh, and they can't be constrained by. Um, state uh, courts, even where they're being constrained by state courts to the end of equality, to the end of, you know, equal representation uh, for all. Uh, the big theme, I think, is real attacks on uh, efforts of, of, of many branches of our government and institutions in our society to, to try to extend equal equality to those who have been denied it. Um, and if the courts stands in the way of that, I, you know, I think approval ratings will plummet still further. Do, do they care about their approval ratings, though, David? I think they do. I know, you know, you said, say something nice about the court. So, I, you know, I'll say, I'll say this. The court doesn't have an army. That's a nice thing. <laughs> that is a good <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> they cannot call out the troops. They cannot. They got, they got a bunch of fences, though, boy. They put them <laughs> fences up after <laughs> that Roe v. Wade. <laughs> They got they some law clerks, too. Don't forget yeah, about yeah, that. They yeah, got they a lot get, of law clerks. Yeah, yeah they're, they're very, very brave, those clerks. But, but you know, they, they, so they can't, you know, they can't, at the end of the day, compel anyone to do anything uh, unless we accept it. And so, you know, and they, nice. they know that. They know that. That, that. And that is an important, important constraint on their power. 
What this court is has to be constrained by is legitimacy. If they give up on legitimacy, if they don't care about legitimacy, uh, you know, then they're unconstrained altogether. And I don't think we've seen that yet. James, what are you noticing over at SCOTUS blog about how Americans are learning and interacting with all of the news that has come out of the Supreme Court and that is about to come out of the Supreme Court? Are they more engaged? Are they more active? Are they more connected to, wait a minute, what the hell is going on up there in D.C.? Yeah, absolutely. We have been seeing, uh, you know, a ton of engagement with the Supreme Court. I think that um, in particular, you know, the, the the Supreme Court has always had really uh, significant consequences on policy and um, in American life, but a lot of the decisions are often like wrapped in complex jargon and are difficult for ordinary people to understand. But I think the recent decisions are like everyone understands what the concrete stakes are, right? It's you don't have to be a lawyer to understand that the constitutional right to abortion doesn't exist anymore. You don't have to be a, a lawyer to understand that people now have more expansive rights to carry concealed weapons in public. So, you know, the stakes are so clear and people are, you know, you know, obviously rightfully concerned about these stakes. And so we're seeing a lot of engagement, not just, you know, on SCOTUS blog itself, but also, you know, what we've really tried to do is you know, explain what the court is doing to new audiences in new formats. So for example, like our TikTok account uh, has like really taken off, like sort of much to my surprise when my <laughs> friend and colleague, uh, Katie Barlow, also a former student of David's, by the way, um, when she launched uh, that that TikTok account a, a year or two ago, I was like kind of skeptical. I was like, really? Is the Supreme Court, you know, doctrine on, on, on TikTok? And actually it's become really popular and we've seen a lot of young people, um, you know, becoming educated on the court in a way that I don't think they otherwise would have. Three things happened at the Supreme Court today. Orders, two oral arguments, and DOJ filed its opposition to Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents fight. Here is a quick explainer of all of the above. Grab your Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco in it, and let's go. I think there really is an appetite for, you know, understanding for civics education in general, and specifically trying to understand what the Supreme Court is, is doing. So, so what you're saying is that we've come a long way from I'm just a bill, I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I respect the classics. David, you can also be proud of all your students who become law clerks, or you can be proud of the students who've come to conquer the worlds of TikTok and basic late night cable variety shows. You know, right. there's a lot of uh, a lot of pride to be had here. You got to go where the power is, right? Yeah. This man is the Bill Bill Parcells, <laughs> Bill Belichick coaching tree, <laughs> just greatness. So as we as we as we bring it home, I, I have two questions: one about optimism, one about wellness. Um, First, optimism with the courts. Are there any specific cases or anything that makes you particularly hopeful about the future of the Supreme Court? You know, and also, what are some of the changes and what are some of the things that people could be doing within our judicial system to make it feel a little more judicious? Can you say something nice? And if not, how do you make it nice? I'll start with you, Juven. Well, you know, Roy, I'm hearing a lot of bitching from you about the, the justices and how you can't, they got to do something to Congress. But why don't you quit complaining and be a Supreme Court justice yourself, huh? Maybe, maybe, okay. maybe get in the grind I'll a little speak. bit and do your own work. All right. I'll do that. I'll get on legal Zoom and start reading some documents. Yeah. 
get myself together. It all snowballs from there, man. It just snowballs. <laughs> um, David, outside of um, helping Juven write jokes on The Daily Show, what can people do, if anything, to change the lack of accountability, not only within the courts, but, you know, what can we do to help influence Congress as well to try and make the courts something that are a little bit nicer? The answer, you know, will probably not be a surprise, uh, but it's vote, right? It is vote. Vote like your rights depend on it. Um, that is what will send the strongest message uh, to the court. Uh, the court is not the only branch that can protect people's rights. The legislatures can, governors can, mayors can, pro- pro- you know, even prosecutors can. Um, so, and all of those people are up for election. So, you know, I, the thing that gives me hope is that, again, as I referred earlier, the history shows that the court, when it gets out, out of sync with the people, its legitimacy crumbles and there is a course correction. That course correction will happen, I, I believe, um, if and only if we who are pissed off, we who think the court's doing the wrong thing, we who care about uh, advancing civil liberties and civil rights for the, to, for the most disadvantaged in this country, stand up and speak out. And what gives me hope is that we are doing that. You know, from the from the women's march uh, when 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 Trump was inaugurated to the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, protests uh, after George Floyd was killed to the March for Our Lives uh, on, on gun control, yeah. people are engaged. Young people are engaged and fighting for the rights that they believe in. And ultimately, when you do that in a democracy and you do it in a sustained way, working with civil society organizations. That's how change happens. So, you know, the court is deeply depressing, but the political engagement of so many people around civil rights and civil liberties today is deeply hopeful. James, we'll go around the horn, starting with you to end this. Now, at The Daily Show, we have cereal. Let me explain for a second. We have afforded to us, thank you to Viacom and Paramount, one of the best Serial selections in the history of late night. I don't know what they're working with at Seth Meyers. I don't know what they're working with over at Corden, but we got at least 20 different boxes of cereal. And when it's a long day, I have myself a nice 3 p.m. bowl of cereal, and that's my cigarette. You know, when it comes to just being stressed, I just sit in our little little cafe we have, and that's how I relax. James, how do you, person who runs SCOTUS blog, full of a lot of bad and stressful news. How do you deal with stress? How do you, what do you do to relax on a regular? Because I think that's an important thing for us to leave our listeners with because we're all stressed about this. What is your routine? What is your Apple Jacks? What is your bowl of Apple Jacks, James? You know what? I wish I had some Apple Jacks. I went down to the pantry this morning to have my bowl of cereal and all that was left was like this uh, super healthy, uh, protein rich uh, oh, stuff. No. Uh, it, it was raisin bran out your house, bro. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you what I normally do, which is, I, you know, I really like to sort of just step away from the Supreme Court and I, I go to the art museums here in DC, the National Gallery, the Phillips Collection. I really love looking at like, you know, 20th century abstract art. And it really is a chance to just like get away completely from what's going on in the Supreme Court. Or so I thought until 
just a couple days ago when the Supreme Court heard this important copyright case about Andy Warhol. And so even when I'm looking at modern art, I can't even escape Supreme Court jurisprudence. So maybe uh, none of us can escape it. I don't know. Zhu, what's what's your what do you do to relax? Because I know you have a child there at the house, so you know I'm sure you have to leave the house. That's what I'll I tell you. That's how I that's how I get away from uh, from all this worry about the future, man. I just look at my kids in the eye, and I just look at them and their faces, and they sneeze in my face and give me a cold, and then I don't have to worry about the Supreme Court anymore because I'm I'm trying to get over a cold, and that's I think what uh that's my way. That's my yeah. way. All right, David, lay it on us. Well, you know, you know the answer. I watch the Daily Show. <laughs> That's the correct answer. Yes. That's the, this was a this was a test. This was a test. <laughs> well, look, this has been a great conversation, and I can't thank the three of you for coming on and going beyond the scenes with us today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Listen to the Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.